the dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you. This is John Barber, and sorry about the technical delay, but we are live, and that was Sarita singing Sonny. And Frank Sinatra saying, here's Johnny, the night he hosted The Night Show. Welcome to John Barber's World Live, finally, in Las Vegas. It's April 30th. My, my, my. Time does fly, but not as fast as the cash runs dry. Last Tuesday was my birthday, and a surprise little present for me was being pre-interviewed on Jesse Ventura's show for Russia Today about Project Mockingbird, and our movie, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which I'm thrilled to say is doing wonderfully well on Amazon and Vimeo. And when Jesse asked my age, I told him if John Kennedy were alive, he'd be 101, and I'd be 16 years his junior, that I was so old I could remember when the Dead Sea was just sick. Well, That 15 minutes flew by, but not nearly enough time to do the subject justice, but enough time to inform folks on how the film shows how to find justice. I got nearly 200 birthday wishes from you all, and thank you. That's about two for each year. And nearly all of you asked me, what kept me looking younger than 101-year-old John Kennedy, and did I make any more so old notes. Well, I did, and I'll read you a couple, then read you a few from some famous folk I admire and a couple I even knew. I'm so old. I remember when Mount Rushmore was just a mountain. You know you're old when a pain in the ass is really a pain in the ass. I have a friend two years older than me, and he says when he and his wife take an afternoon nap, he's afraid one of them will wake up. For my birthday last year, I installed a bright, low-hanging chandelier in my bathroom. One, it helps me find it, and two, it gives me something to help pull me up, which reminds me of what Andy Rooney said on 60 Minutes. He said, growing old is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. At a late-night dinner with George Burns, He told us he had a friend so old when he ordered his three-minute eggs, they asked for the money in advance. And on my show, Phyllis Diller, bless her heart, she said she was so old, her back went up more than she did. But the funniest had to be Rodney Dangerfield, with whom I did a number of Merv Griffin shows. He said, I'm at the age where food is more exciting to me than sex. So I put a mirror over my kitchen table. That, that is classic. Now, as for what keeps me young, rage, 
and gratitude. America and its actions around the world and here supply the endless rage. And once in a while, the gratitude and finding and knowing there's still Americans like my guest. I have around 1,200 Facebook friends, but only one of them have I ever tried to friend. And that is my guest. And it took months because she has the Facebook limit of 5,000 and could have thousands more if they allowed it. She's a former CIA agent assigned to Iraq. When she got no response from superiors, when she discovered Saddam had nothing to do with 911 and no weapons of mass destruction, she asked to testify before Congress. She was arrested immediately for violating the Patriot Act and without trial, sentenced to prison. She self-published a mind-blowing, eye-opening book about her ordeal called Extreme Prejudice, showing her act was one of extreme patriotism. It's an honor to welcome my new best friend, Susan Lindauer. Susan, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. What a great introduction! I've been I've been laughing. I've been hide, trying to put my mouth my hand over my mouth so I wouldn't laugh into the phone and interrupt your your jokes because you're I, I love you. I think you're wonderful. Happy birthday! Happy oh, well, happy that, birthday! Well, thank you so much, dear. And uh, you you know I, I uh, what I want to I want to ask you as I do everyone because I'm always curious with the people I admire how they grew up to be the people I would ad- admire. And in reading about you, and I just last night again watched a half a dozen of your videos, I must tell you, you are a brilliant speaker. You're extremely articulate. You're very appealing to look at. You've got a wonderful voice. And the story that you tell is a movie. And so I, I, I would wonder, has Oliver Stone made a really interesting movie about Ed Snowden, as you probably know, but yours is every bit as appealing. Has anybody ever approached you about possibly telling your story on film? Well, you know, there was a producer who, who, uh, who, oh, who, that's not the question I was expecting you to ask me. Um, there, there have been some nibbles that I've gotten uh, over the years, but my story is is so scary. I think. It's 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 a it's got some great sadness and tragedy in it, and I don't think that Hollywood can absorb that kind of tragedy. You know, you may be absolutely right, but the, the first, <laughs> I but the it's question. persevering. It's persevering <laughs> because I grew up in Alaska, and I am a, a an indomitable woman. <laughs> I uh, on the day of my arrest, I, I right before the show, I was thinking about this. Uh, I was I, the day of my arrest. I was appeared in court, and I was apparently smiling and nodding to the media. And I got everyone very worried about me because they they couldn't understand why I they, they, I was accused of treason and uh, acting as an Iraqi agent. But as soon as I saw the charges against me, I read the indictment. First, I was furious. I was absolutely livid. And then I looked at the indictment, the paper itself, and it was just so preposterously ridiculous. I had no idea that I was going to spend five years 
fighting to have these ridiculous charges dismissed, which I did not know what the Patriot Act was. The Patriot Act um, it allows secret charges, secret evidence. Well, evidently, Susan, so does every congressperson who signed it because they never even read the Patriot Act. But put that on pause for just a second. Sure. You you said you were raised in Alaska. Tell us a little bit about your family background, what it is that you, as this tough surviving young woman in Alaska, what it is that you dreamt of doing, how did you get from Alaska to the London School of Economics? Well, you know, I, uh, my mother was a tremendous influence on my life. And she, now realize, she was a, a newspaper publisher. She had 10 weekly newspapers all through Alaska, the North Slope of Alaska, Ketchikan, Cordova, uh, the Aleutian Islands, Bristol Bay. She had four radio stations and one radio news network that went all the way through the whole state of Alaska. She had a newspaper in Point Barrow, which is the northernmost wow. point inhabited by the in, in the United States anywhere. And these were obviously very, very tiny newspapers. But she was a beloved figure. She was also the head of the uh, Anchorage Fine Arts Museum. And... She was um, the president of the World Affairs Council. And so we would have, my mother would, all these world leaders, very famous, very famous people, would come into Anchorage, Alaska, and they'd want to see what Alaska was like. And so my mother would host them, and they'd come to our house, and I would get to meet them. So I met Hosni Mubarak of Egypt, <clears throat> My goodness. I met I met columnists from the Washington Post and the New York Times and embassies around the you know foreign ministers and ambassadors and such from all over the world and it was because they all wanted to take a, a trip to Alaska so they'd come to our house <laughs> they'd oh, stop in Alaska oh, they'd come to our house and then I ended up going first to Smith College which was a small women's college in Northampton, Massachusetts, and I mm-hmm. really needed to be at a small school. I would not I would have been lost at a big university and I needed the individual attention and it allowed me to build up the confidence but also the kind of the missing educational background that I that I didn't have because I did grow up in Alaska with very limited schools. Uh, very limited range of opportunities in, in education in Alaska. And then I ended up going to the London School of Economics, and I decided I wanted to be a journalist. And so I, I went to work first at Fortune magazine, of all places, and then I be, went out uh, to... Susan, uh, Susan, quick question. If sure. you uh, wanted to be a journalist, why wouldn't you have gone to someplace like Columbia or maybe New York University? Uh, I, I was accepted into Columbia University. I, I was accepted there, but I decided I wanted to go to London. I wanted oh, okay. to go overseas, and um, and then my and then I after the London School of Economics, I did go to New York, and I told my my family that I wanted to go to graduate school. At, I wanted to defer my education and, and, and continue at the Columbia Journalism School, 
And wow. my mother said, no, we're not paying for any more of your education. You're done. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> okay, I said, okay, us, I'm done. <laughs> obviously, you're influenced enormously by this background in journalism and meeting yeah. people who are journalists and politicians. So you're steeped but in this. But it's also and you start- very humbling because I was in Alaska and my mother's <laughs> newspapers were teeny, teeny, tiny little newspapers. You realize they had like, you know, a thousand people in the town, <laughs> so, to, so to speak. I'm not, no kidding. So it was very humbling, but also uh, uh, then I came to Washington, D.C., and I worked for my mother's newspapers as a Washington, D.C. correspondent. Oh, and how was, interesting. Yes, and, and I got to deal with uh, Senator Stevens and Murkowski and, you know, all the different Congress members in the committees. And at that moment, I did something. Uh, my mother died of cancer oh. very young, and, and she was in her 50s. She's, she was the age I am now. And I, uh, after her death, I did something quite extraordinary. I, uh, and part of it is classified. I gave advance warning about the 1993 World Trade Center attack. And now, I, literally, okay. Oh, okay. I literally oh, walked uh, into the Susan, Tunisian Susan. embassy two days before it happened and told them about it. But How did you this, find, were, were you with the CIA at that time or were you a journalist at that time? Uh, I was a, a uh, my mother had died and my father had sold the newspapers. So I was no longer working as a journalist and I was kind of in between what I was doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was trying to trying to get a new job, but it was at that moment that I uh, that I gave this advance warning about the '93 World Trade Center attack. And how did you point, find out that, that, was, that information? Well, I'm, I'm not allowed to tell. Unfortunately, there are certain things I'm not allowed to tell to this day, and that is one. Unfortunately, that's one of them. But that is how okay, then, I came uh, then, to be known uh, by okay. by the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency. Okay, then the question that I would have to ask him, this may, you may not want to say either. You are somehow, did you look to join the Central Intelligence Agency or did they recruit you? Did they find you? They came, uh, after I gave the warning, um, I became, uh, they, they, put me under a, an intensive microscope that terrified me. I would literally come home from work, and, and by this time I was working as a congressional staffer for Peter DeFazio of Oregon. And I oh, would literally cool. come home from work, and as soon as I walked in the door, I would sit down on my couch and burst into tears crying. <laughs> oh, I was my. absolutely devastated that about the, the bombing. I felt horrible that it had happened and that I uh, I thought that maybe I had done something wrong but because I, I did go tell the Tunisians. I went to the Tunisian. I did something. Uh, ever, I don't do things th- the way that other people would ordinarily do them. Uh, I went to the Tunisian embassy and I sp- asked to speak with a diplomat. My logic was that the Tunisians represented the Palestinians and the Palestinians would know what to do about a terrorist attack. So to me, it made sense that if I was going to try to actually do something, I should tell somebody who knew what to do about it. 
but the fact that it was it was more creative and more sophisticated than these people were used to dealing with was pretty upsetting to them. <laughs> and uh, I was well, put under a magnifying glass. I was literally followed to work. I literally had people camped out in outside my apartment in Washington D.C. 24/7 and I would go to work and someone would literally I, I was working in a congressional office. They wanted me to stay silent, not to tell anybody what I had done. And so they they made sure that I knew that I was being watched and they would literally walk with me to the metro every morning following behind me and then I would get off the metro at Capitol Hill and there would be the same lady at the top of the metro escalator every single day and she would walk with me to my uh, follow behind me as I walked to my office and I and, and it scared me <laughs> they really, well, I, I, they I'm really scared. I, I was I was 29 and I was scared of them <laughs> Susan you okay you can't tell us how you found out this information, and, and you're not saying accurate. whether you were... It was okay. very accurate. Oh, okay, I, there's obviously no question about that because of what happened to you. So the, my first question then would be, since we don't know exactly if you were CIA at the time, but you did have this information... Oh, no, no, I was what? not CIA at the time. I uh, was not. I was, an, I was a, a citizen... And uh, I, I was completely uh, removed from any agencies, and I discovered the information, and I took it to I took action on it. Okay, and they now were quite what surprised was, what by your, me, <laughs> Susan. What were your impressions when you saw the attack? So I'll tell you what my impression was, and my impression it turned out to be the same reason that Dr. Judy Wood did the research on her book, which was called "Well, Where Have the Towers Gone." And that was, since I had been in television news for years, when it happened, I would go from ABC to CBS to NBC to CNN to Fox to find different shots of the attacks in the buildings. And they were all the same shot. And I always yeah. had the impression that that shot was fed to the networks and not created by the networks. Now, I may be wrong but that was no, what made they, me... they, there was they, this was a real genuine attack but that's often what they do they allow the media to go into one portion of the attack and this is why 911 is so significant because uh i to fast forward i my my career in in anti-terrorism started with the 93 world trade center attack and my cia handler dr richard fuse uh, was an expert on Lockerbie, so then I, I became oh. uh, connected to Libya, and I negotiated the Lockerbie trial with Libya and ran an operation to clear the terrorists out of Libya, which was highly successful, very, 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 very effective. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's like my life really could be a movie, except you'd have to say, oh, and now this part is redacted. <laughs> Oh, that, oh, we'd like to tell you this that, part, but it's redacted. <laughs> that, that, that is funny because you said earlier in the show that people, you can't handle the truth that Jack Nicholson said, character says yeah. in A Few Good Men. But the country and the culture that George Bush destroyed and you yeah. tried to prevent that destruction, yeah. which we'll get into now. 
A 5,000-year-old Persian proverb says, if you're going to tell the truth, you better have one foot in the stirrup. So now you have a CIA handler. Oh, I like that quote. I like that. You'd better have one foot in the stirrup. Be ready to run. They're going to come after you. (laughs) That's exactly right. Now, you have a CIA handler. Now, we're going to get into the question of how you went about, which was just amazing. I mean, it's a great story, how you went about informing President Bush about what you knew about Saddam and that he shouldn't invade Iraq. But the question I want to ask you is one that all Americans think about. How much did they pay you as a CIA agent? Well, (laughs) I was being reimbursed directly by Richard Fuse. So one of the one of the problems they had, but I but I have to kind of jump back and tell you uh, something very important because it ties together the '93 World Trade Center attack with my case, and that Uh is that it later on. It would be the most critical factor of all in my survival was that my judge, Michael Mukasey, had two connections to me that were through the, 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 the cases I'd worked on. He considered that the night he was the judge who oversaw the prosecution of Sheikh Abdurrahman, who was the mastermind of the 93 World Trade Center case. So when I was arrested years later, and I was put into the FBI car in handcuffs, and driven, they were driving to Baltimore, the, the, the FBI agent said, oh, you got Michael Mukasey. They want me to tell you. He kept saying, they want me to tell you who your judge is. He said, I've been told. This, now, the FBI agent is driving the car, and I'm in handcuffs in the back seat. I have just been arrested on the Patriot Act. And he and it's terrifying. It's like shocking. They have not told me what I was accused of doing. They just said, Susan Lindauer, you are under arrest on the Patriot Act. And I don't even know what I'm accused of doing. So he, I'm in the back of the car, and they said, I want, I've been told that I need to tell you something. And, and I'm like, oh, this, how could this day get worse than it is? Okay, tell me. And he said, Susan, your judge is Michael Mukasey. He is most famous for overseeing the 1993 World Trade Center trial. And wow. I tell you, I began to laugh. I was in handcuffs, in, and, I was his, and it was a hysterical, emotional laugh. People respond oh. very differently to stress. And I began to laugh uncontrollably. It was like someone said... There is salvation at the end of this, at the wow. end of this awful car ride. You're going to be okay because your judge is the man who started your entire career. Was Michael? Now, that, let me ask you about another member of your family. Then this is how you have this information about the fact that Saddam. You said in, in one film of yours I saw, or one video, you were talking about the fact that Saddam had invited the FBI to his country to investigate openly. And this information, you were the information you found, you were giving to your cousin. Tell us who your cousin was. Yes, my cousin again. 
synchronicity is amazing in my life. Uh, I began negotiations for the to res, to get the weapons inspectors back into Iraq while Florida was counting the ballots and the hanging chads. And so I was I was sitting down with Iraq's ambassador to resume the weapons inspections, and one of the deals on the table was that the FBI could send a terrorism task force. This was in November of 2000, while the ballots are being counted. Uh, it could send an FBI terrorism task force into Iraq with permission to investigate witnesses and make arrests. As I was finishing those talk, that first talks, the word came through that my own cousin, Andrew Card, had been named chief of staff to president to the newly elected President George Bush. So my talks preceded his nomin his appointment, but again, always, always in my life, I am telling you, I've got the weirdest craziest synchronicity it is serendipity like, serendipity serendipity it is serendipity and it's like the weirdest thing the things that should never happen to anybody else will happen to me and they will turn out to be the most the single most important details and well, and, and I, it's I, like I, so I, bizarre I, and random and yet there you have it I'm doing the talks. My cousin is named um, uh, chief of staff to President George Bush. So all of these reports are then going directly to the White House to the chief of staff. And no, if they're at going, the very talk, and they're going Susan. to his house. They're going yeah, to yeah. his house. So I know he got all of them. There's no question he's getting all the reports. And then uh, that uh, becomes... uh, Susan, inter I'm going to interrupt okay, a second. Okay, he's getting the reports, and obviously they're going to go to George Bush. Now, you sit back and you wait for some kind of reaction to the information you were providing directly oh, to I a conduit. Oh, I was. I was. But I was getting it from the CIA. So I had my CIA handler, who I was meeting with every single week. And then I was giving the reports to the CIA and to no, but what the I'm White getting, House. What I'm getting at is in the media, we see the mounting pressure from the White House and all of those people around George Bush, Condoleezza Rice, and Powell, and all of the rest of them, Cheney, ramping up the attack on Iraq, which you knew would be illegal. So oh, what yes. is... What, so what is going through your mind while you're sitting at home knowing Absolute you're giving... horror. Absolute horror. I was, I was beside myself. I am not a passive person, in case you, know, in case you had any doubt. <laughs> so I went right... I, I live in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and I can be on Capitol Hill in 30 minutes. And literally, I would get up, and I would run down to Capitol Hill. I'd have my morning coffee. I'd run down to Capitol Hill, grab my papers, and go door to door, delivering this, deliver, sitting down one-on-one, -on -one, excuse me, one-on-one -on -one with congressional staffers saying, this is a mistake. You've made a terrible mistake. And I am not, you know, and, I'm, and I gave them debriefings about 
the, um, the, the Comprehensive Peace Framework. Now, let me tell you, the Comprehensive Peace Framework started with weapons inspections, and by February of 2001, the Iraqis had consented to invite an F- the FBI task force to come into Baghdad. And so in April of 2001, when my CIA handler told me that he wanted me to go up to New York and ask the Iraqi diplomats what they knew about the future attack on the World Trade Center. This was the second attack, September 11th. And remember, this is, you know, this is now 2001. And he, right. in April of 2001, he says, I want you to go up to the Iraqis and ask them what they know about this coming attack. We expect airplane hijackings and or airplane bombings and a strike on the World Trade Center as a known target. We also suspect that there will be miniature thermonuclear devices used in addition to the attack by the, the, the airplane. And we, we need you to find, tell the Iraqis that if they possess any intelligence and they do not give it to us, we will bomb them back to the Stone Age harder than they've ever been bombed before. So, at this point, I, I do it. And the Iraqis' response was, in April and May of 2001, before, the, the World Trade, before 9-11, was that they should send in the FBI task force. Because Iraq had, Baghdad had already consented to have the FBI come in, and, they, and the diplomats said, you, just, you know, just tell them, tell them I'll, I, I will process the visa myself. You tell them that they should come to come to the embassy, and I will instruct the diplomatic staff to interrupt any meeting. I will come ra- I, wherever I am, and if anywhere in New York, I will immediately return to the embassy. I'll jump in a cab, and I'll be here in 15 minutes, and I will process their visas immediately so that they can go into Baghdad and start their investigation of this. If you think that the if you think there's really going to be a terrorist attack. The FBI is welcome to come verify it. Well, now, he had, now, now George Bush had a problem because George Bush didn't, you know, the Iraqis were complying with everything that, that he wanted, you see. And you can see how I became like a, my threat mushroomed because Andrew Card knew all of this. And Andrew Card, my cousin, was the chief of staff to George Bush, which meant that not only did Richard Fuse know this, but the chief of staff of the White House knew it too. <laughs> what was that, Susan? What was the moment that made you decide you wanted to testify before Congress, which ultimately led, I guess, the next day to your arrest? Well, and it was actually the- thirty days later. Uh, President Bush, uh, you know, the the tragedy is, of course. That the you know it's not even funny. It's it's actually very tragic that the war in Iraq was such a catastrophe. It is pernicious. It is one of the most destructive forces in the history of mod- in modern history uh, that has ever happened, and it is cataclysmic to this day. We're suffering. Europe is suffering from the consequences of it. You know, we've had ISIS suffering. Everything is just soldiers suicide. Soldiers suicides every day. Every day, every day, and so there's. It's not a. It's not a funny matter. I, as as a, as an ex spook, 
who suffered, I have, I laugh. I have to laugh because otherwise I, I, it's just too terrible. Um, well, then, but oh, you're I, okay. now, uh, yeah, Susan, but I demanded you're... to testify, uh, that what happened was John McCain, uh, John McCain and, uh, George Bush declared that there would be a presidential commission on Iraqi pre-war intelligence. And I immediately telephoned the office of John McCain and demanded to testify. I said, I am the person who knew everything about the real intelligence source. This was not an intelligence failure. It was not. Never. Never for a moment. you're, You're arrested... And your your thirty cousin, days later, thirty days uh, after I I um, did you uh, hear from your did you hear from your cousin? What did he do to help you? Well, right at that moment, uh, as soon as I went to to John McCain's office, I am told I was told by the FBI uh, that Andrew Card Andrew Card received a subpoena to come testify before a grand jury, and he they the FBI said Susan. He, they kept telling me nobody wants to do this to you. They were they, they they realized very quickly. I think that they had made a terrible mistake in arresting me because I could bite them. As, as I used as I used to say when I was five years old, I'm going to bite you, <laughs> <laughs> and I have teeth and you don't. <laughs> I am going to bite you, and believe me, if I bite you, I'm going to leave you bloody. <laughs> this is not going to be so. So, uh, so what they said was that the grand jury had convened for 30 days and did not want to indict me, and they would only do it if they could go. So, so finally, they had to say it was secret evidence, that the CIA was in possession, or the, the FBI was in, FBI, I guess, DOJ, was in possession of secret evidence that they could not show the grand jury, but the grand jury would have to take their word for it and pass this indictment against me. But the grand jury was never allowed to see the evidence. Now think about that. But it was so desperately important for them to silence me and keep me silent. And I I will tell you for all, if you have soldiers out there and veterans, they will know this is true. Once the military is deployed... They, they say, you know, that, that a truth is the first casualty of war. And that is true because once soldiers are on the, in the field and they are risking bodily harm, getting their, getting their amputations, paralysis, head injuries, death, separation from their loved ones, then you also have to deal with military recruitment. You have yeah. to deal with the opinion of the occupied people. And the how the enemy regards the soldiers and uh, the American soldiers, and all of these things are at at risk in Iraq. And so I became a greater threat, not because I was incompetent, but because I had really done the things that I'm telling you, and because they could not risk anybody finding out about it. You must have felt, (laughs) honestly. You must have felt you were living in a suicidal Orwellian nightmare. How on earth did you survive all that time? Well, there was one more detail 
that is just absolutely, that, that does make me angry, because I understand the need to protect the soldiers. I totally get that. But there was one man who violated his code of oath, and that was Colin Powell. Colin Powell lived right next door to my CIA handler, Richard Fuse. So I knew that when, before his, twice before his big speech at the United Nations, January 8th and January 27th, twice, I went to Colin Powell and I gave him copies of all the, the comprehensive peace framework. And in, in, I gave him, so he had the copies of the Comprehensive Peace Framework, and I said, whatever you need, I will get you. Just let me help you stop this war. And then the second one, a week before his big speech at the United Nations, I said, I went back to him and I said, um, the Iraqi exiles are fabricate. they're notorious liars, they are fabricating and falsifying intelligence. You cannot trust these people. They have no support in Baghdad. Nobody wants them to come back and be the governor, part of the government. They have no constituents. So the only way they're going to get back into power is with the United States soldiers pointing a gun in people's faces. This is not going to work. This occupation will be a disaster. And I said, and they're notorious for forging documents. Well, Two things. One, the Iraqi exiles forged documents about me. Uh, and the second thing was that Colin Powell gave those papers to the FBI. And when well, I he, knew, was, he knew when he was at the United Nations that it was an absolute lie that the vial that he was yes. holding was another yes. lethal chemical weapon. So that's right. It was, so, and I had, he'd been warned. But, but check this out. Here, check out this timeline. Uh, after my arrest, I was free on bail for 18 months. From March of 2004 until September of 2005, I made one, one court appearance. And the judge said, Judge Michael Mukasey looked at me and he said, Ms. Lindauer, I hereby, here, hereafter recuse you from coming to any court proceedings. You are not obligated to be here. You just go home. Okay, and I was like, yes, you, sir. Okay. You, thank you, sir. But hold on. On September 8th, this is very important. September 8th, Colin Powell gave an interview with Barbara Walters for 2020. And he accused the CIA of not warning him that the intelligence was from the Yes, I, I recall that interview. So okay, I'm going to ask you okay, to. September 8th. September 7th. Okay, hold on. Uh, this is so interesting, and I hate to keep interrupting you, but it's so important. So I have two questions to ask you, and the, one is a very tough question. Do you consider George Bush, Condoleezza Rice, Powell, and Cheney war criminals? Yes. Tragic. Uh, Tragic yes. stupidity. Yes. Yes. Okay, now the but, next but, but question me, would be, okay. and I hate to, it goes back to the business I asked you, how much you were making as a CIA agent, and you were you were compensated through some by some other means. You obviously lost all of your income at the time. Yes. The family that you had left with you, did they did they still have contact with you? And how no. on earth? My, my family, my family abandoned me. Uh, I have not seen my father since March of 2004, since the week of my arrest. 
and I have not seen my brother since 2000, 2001. God, that's so sad. How do you survive economically now? Uh, I survive off my book, Extreme Prejudice, and I survive off renter income from a basement apartment. So I, it's, it's exceedingly, exceedingly tough, exceedingly tough. But I have to tell you one more thing about Colin Powell, because he gave that interview on, it's, it's even worse than, than you could imagine. I, he gave that interview on September 8th. On September 17th, the government, the, the Justice Department rubber-stamped an order that I was, quote, not competent to stand trial. I was not competent to assist my attorney. And they said that I was a religious maniac suffering nonstop hallucinations and psychosis. And, of course, you can tell from talking to me that that's ridiculous. That's preposterous. But I do believe in God. I do. I definitely do. And I think this is a magnificent earth, and I love it. And I have a a very strong sense of the the, the universe as, as a force of good and moral judgment. Okay. So... On September 17th, that's nine days after this interview, they rubber stamp an order that I'm not competent. On September 23rd, I was ordered to appear in court, and I was, which is um, 15, uh, 14 days. September, wait a minute. September 8th, September 23rd is 15 days after the interview. 15 days after that interview, I'm ordered to appear in court in New York. For the first time since my arrest. Wow. And they ambush me and they say, you are going to prison. I have not made any court appearances. You cannot imagine the shock that I've gone from believing the case was just, you know, it was going to be dismissed. There was no action. Nothing is happening. I'm feeling very safe. And then September 23rd, I'm ordered that I shall surrender to prison on October 3rd, 10 days later, because they were so afraid that I was going to go out and reveal what Col- that I, and dispute what Colin Powell was saying. Because he, he then, as, after September 8th, this selfish, narcissistic man, Colin Powell, should be court-martialed for lying to his fellow officers that nobody had warned him against that bad intelligence. That was a bald-faced lie. He committed, uh, he should have been court-martialed for lying to his fellow officers and for violating his oath to protect the constitutional rights of American citizens. It was despicable. I ended up going to prison on October 3rd for a year. And they fought, they, they fought very hard not to release me, and they wanted to detain me indefinitely on the Patriot Act, they could, indefinitely for up to 10 years with no right to a trial or hearing and no guilty plea. Can you imagine, Susan, how many other stories there are like you in this country in this day and age? Oh. So I'm going to ask you two last questions. Sure. Thank you so much and bless your heart for being here. Uh, one of the questions would be, do you think there ever will be justice for the perpetrators of 911? And the Never. second question would be, okay, I feel the same also. I think the bad guys yeah. have won, quite honestly. And the yeah. other question is, where can people go to get your your book, 
Extreme Prejudice. Uh, you can go on Amazon, and if you want to support me at all, I hope you will. I hope you will buy a copy of my book because literally that's how I live. Oh. <laughs> that's how okay. I make it. But I, I have a, a family who will not even, who even to this day, my stepmother refuses to allow me to speak to my father. Not only have we not seen each other and visited together, but we're not allowed to speak to each other either on the phone. Okay. Well, Susan, I want to thank you so much. Um, I want, uh, afterwards, I'll get a, a link to Amazon and to your book. I want to make a donation and buy a couple of copies of the book, which I will give to thank friends. Thank you, you could so also, much. For- you could also make a donation on PayPal to slindauer2008 at yahoo.com if you want to say make a donation again. by PayPal. That's what we'll do instead. So say it again. S. Lindauer, 2008 at yahoo.com. But I hope you'll also buy the book because Extreme Prejudice on Amazon. So either way, either way would be helpful. Well, thank you. But the book is is an eye-opener on what really happens on the Patriot Act and how truly scary this law is. Well, I want to thank you, Susan, so very, very much. And God speak to you. May I just say one last thing? Sure. A lot of people ask me, what did President, what do I think of President Trump on Iraq? And I just want you to know that he is telling the truth. I remember watching CNN before the war, before the war, and he came out against the war very strongly. He was yes, very critical, and he's telling the truth about that. He was very critical. Do you have Thank another you. guess? Well, stay there a minute. This fellow is brilliant. He writes a daily newsletter, an independent newsletter called News Vandal, and it's absolutely and total, totally brilliant. And he's he is sort of my co-host and co- and he does the last twenty minutes of every show. And you and I have run over, but I want him to say something to you and apologize for him to him for not having more time with him. So stay there, Susan. Hello, Susan. Good to meet you. You are, and I say this as a term of endearment, the living embodiment of a kick in the pants. <laughs> yes. You are. Thank I've you. listened to many guests. Great John Barber, a man who is a professional interview interviewer, many, many years. And it is few and far between the guests who can come on and and keep John at bay and continue to talk and get, and, and just keep going. It's just been an amazing <laughs> tour de force on your part. And I know that part of it is because John knows the, the, um, the intensity with which you are, uh, you're telling your story is directly proportionate to the truth that you are, you've experienced. Thank you very I, much. Thank you very I, much. Well, I always told them, people ask me, one of the best interviewers I ever had was Michael Herzog who you should have as a guest on your show, too. You should talk to him. And he asked me, the first question he asked me was, Susan Lindauer, why are you still alive? Oh, my God. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, I refuse to die until I get my trial. And at this rate, I'm going to live forever. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, Joe, also, I want to do apologize to you. If I had known, first, first of all, that Susan would be so interesting. No, and, I know. No, John, I was listening 
just enjoying the whole time. I've been sitting here laughing and guffawing and been, been you know, we have bated breath on occasion. And, you know, well, look. well, I'd like you to comment on her comment about Trump, because I recall when Trump made those observations when he was just a candidate about Iraq. But I haven't heard him say a word since. So I'd like your comment on her comment. No, and I think one of the things I noted was that Donald Tr Trump was the has to this day still is the only major political figure who, when bringing up the cost or the tragedy or the, the mess or the mistake or the whatever it was, because yeah. there are all these different ways of calling it, of Iraq, is the only person to point out that the Iraqi people have suffered too. That is always yeah. missing from whatever is said by American political figures and leaders about Iraq. It's always about what America suffered, the, co the cost to America in blood and treasure, not the incredible yeah. destruction the Iraqi people faced in uh, under basically false pretenses, under a lie. So, yes. but one of the things I think I have about tremendous Trump respect for President Trump, and I think that he is not going. Let me just tell you, your listening audience, I do not believe we are going. He's going to take us into war with Syria. I do not believe. No, it. no, he is that the Syria thing is is completely over. That's done. Yes. And and the thing I think about Donald Trump though, is that I think he used the Iraq War. In the election, in the campaign, to destroy the candidacy of Jeb Bush, and it worked like a charm. And when yes, you follow what happened after Jeb Bush was 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 cut off at the knees, the rhetoric switched to we need to bomb the feces out of them, we need to kill them and their families if they are terrorists, kill their families. And if you look at what's happened since the arrival of Donald Trump, civilian casualties have spiked all around the world. The United States has extended its operations, its special operations and its deployments all around the world, except for in Syria. So I, you know, I, well, I think, you think that that's true. Where, where do you think that's happened? Oh no, the numbers are in. I mean, I can, you know, okay. I, Susan, I can send you all. It's okay. all uh, Joe, yeah, I'd love to see them. I'd love to see them. Yeah. Uh, Susan, Joe will send you those numbers. I only have 15 seconds to say, Thank you to both of you, and I'm sorry that, that we have to cut this off. I wish we could go for another another hour. Susan, you will be back. Joe, I, you may start the show next week, Joe. We got to talk about all. Michelle Wolf. So, oh yes, oh. I want to talk about her next yeah, week. So, okay. Okay. The best of luck to both of you. So, as Ed Murray used to say, good night and good luck. Sunny, 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 sunny